Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello. Well, that was a uh, different music to what you're used to at the start of this podcast, isn't it? That was by a uh, artist, Dougie Fields. And if you've listened to enough of these podcasts, you'll know that I've never been shy in saying that if it wasn't for Dougie Fields, I very probably wouldn't be an artist today. Well, this morning, which is Monday, March the 8th, when I first went onto Instagram, I saw uh, a previous guest, Martin Green's post which had an image belonging to Dougie Fields, which was nothing rare because, um, you know, Martin posts a lot about Dougie. So I stopped to see what Martin had said, and the first words were, R.I.P. Dougie Fields, which really was quite shocking. I mean, I know it's shocking whenever you hear that um, someone you know dies, but he'd been very ill recently, and I knew that he'd beaten that illness. And then Martin phoned me just to fill me in on some of the details, and it transpires that... um. After a short illness, Dougie passed away over the weekend. So as a little nod to Dougie, I wanted to re-release uh, the podcast I recorded with him, which was my very first episode. And the reason it was my very first episode is because when I was in prison and fell in love with art whilst doing a GNVQ art course, one of the projects was to find an artwork in a magazine or newspaper and just write about it. Well, in one of the Sunday magazines... There was a stunning photograph of designer Sandra Rhodes, which I presume was in her home because in the background there was a painting that very much caught my eye, which Sandra mentioned in the article was painted by her friend, artist Dougie Fields, who lived in Earl's Court, London. And bearing in mind I was new to looking at art, and I probably knew about six artists, I thought it was similar to Salvador Dali because it was a very unconventional, bright, colourful and slightly bonkers portrait. 
And I was later to find out that it was painted by Dougie Fields, who was unconventional, bright, colourful and slightly bonkers. But in our sparse prison library, there was nothing on Dougie Fields. So I thought I'd write the letter, which I did. I told him where I was doing this how much I liked him, and that I wanted to know more about his work and career. So I put that letter in an envelope, put a stamp in the top right hand corner, and on the front of the envelope I wrote, Dougie Fields, in brackets, artist. And I shit you not, it only went and reached him. Hats off to the post office, although that was before privatisation. So you can imagine how shocked I was when a a parcel turned up a week or so later. He'd sent me some catalogues, press releases, postcards, and a really nice letter that was, um, and signed with possibly the best signature I'd ever seen which I'll very probably make as the cover for this podcast episode. And I corresponded with Dougie throughout the rest of my sentence, which was over five years. But by Dougie doing that one act of writing to this stranger in prison, that gave me the confidence to to write to other artists. The next being um, Ray Richardson and Patrick Hughes, followed by the YBAs. But if Dougie hadn't replied, I very probably wouldn't have... um, had the confidence to write to any other artist, you know? So, Dougie, thank you. You was fundamental in me changing my life. And as you'll hear in this podcast, I was lucky enough to be able to thank him to his face. This morning, I was reading a few of the tributes left for Dougie to try and put together a little one of my own. But I kept going back to Martin Green's, which, well, it pretty much said everything, so I hope you don't think it's a bit of a cop-out but I'm going to use the words of Martin Green. A legend, an inspiration, a great artist and friend. It's with tremendous sadness I'm writing this tribute. Dougie was one of Britain's most original, influential and distinctive talents. The vital missing pop art link between Patrick Colfield and Julian Opie. I love that phrase. But totally and woefully ignored by the art establishment. This exclusion compelled James Lawler and Martin Green to work with Dougie in 2012 on a solo show, his first in over 20 years, and it was an inspiring experience. Duo Vision Arts was founded and continued to exhibit his work and other older neglected LGBTQ artists, many at his recommendation. Over recent years, Dougie gained great support from Toby Webster and the Modern Institute, and his art started to reach a wider international audience. Dougie was a London legend, an immaculate icon. He shared his famous Earl's Court flat with Sid Barrett, and Mark Boland debuted songs in the kitchen. Being an ever-present part of the city's counterculture life, his presence graced Ken Russell and Derek Jarman films. Dougie was a maximalist. He created videos, music, prints, cushions, badges, ties, wallpaper and painted the most extraordinarily impressive vibrant canvases, the epitome of postmodern pop. He was a great friend and supportive of so many artists. I loved him very much. He will be missed by us all. London will never be quite the same. Rest in peace, Dougie. So cool. I couldn't have said it better myself. Well, I definitely couldn't. That's why I read Martin's. But yeah, Martin's words just summed up everything about Dougie. 
So please sit back and listen to my very first podcast episode, which at the time was called Mizog Art, which was me sitting in the Brompton Cemetery with Dougie Fields, who is definitely unconventional, bright, colourful and just a little bit bonkers. Thank you, Dougie. Hello, I'm Gary Mansfield and welcome to the Mizog Art podcast, where each week I'll be speaking to a different artist. Now let's begin by banging these bongos. Hello and welcome to this, the very first episode of the Mizogart podcast. It does feel like we should have had fireworks just then rather than just the bongos. If you happen to have listened to the preview episode last week, you'd know that this week starting us on our journey is conceptual painter Mr Dougie Fields. Now if you don't know of Dougie or his work, do yourself a favour and just Google him. He's an extremely colourful character and it wouldn't be going too far as to say he's like a living artwork. He could well have been plucked out of one of his own paintings. And while you're there, search for his home because as soon as you cross his threshold, it's as if you're walking into Dougie's world. This podcast was recorded just around the corner from Dougie's Earl's Court apartment in a place where Dougie likes to go and relax and reflect. It's the beautiful Brompton Cemetery. Although the Brompton Cemetery is an extremely tranquil place, you can obviously hear the birds singing in and around us. And a little way in the distance, you can hear the construction work going on on the old Earl's Court exhibition site. It's a project that Dougie has actively opposed since the plans were released. And I should add, before the podcast even starts, that through naivety at this stage, I hadn't yet invested in a foam mic cover. So occasionally you can hear the wind hitting the open mic. It is a tad annoying, but it is bearable, and I do apologise. And I've since invested in a mic cover, so it won't be happening again. Without spoiling things too much, in this episode you're going to hear of some of the people that collect Dougie's work, and how a certain film director asked Dougie personally to design the artwork for their film, which was later to become extremely iconic. Even though it's only a three or four minute walk from Dougie's apartment to the Brompton Cemetery, we were stopped several times by passers-by who just wanted to say hello to Dougie. And even halfway through this episode, a Dougie Fields admirer pops over to have a little chat, which was nice of him. But speaking of people who are getting in the way of a conversation, I'll shut up. Here's Dougie Fields. I hope you enjoy. Okay. Right, so we're sat, I'm sat here this afternoon um, in... In a graveyard of all places, and what was it called? Dougie? Brompton Cemetery. Brompton Cemetery. I'm sat here with with Dougie Fields, um, who was the the first artist that I wrote to from prison many years ago, 1997. Do you reckon? It's a while back. Yes. Uh, yeah, too long, too long ago. Um, I saw Dougie's. I saw a painting of Dougie's. Um, I was doing a. Uh, a GMVQ art course, and I had to, um, I had to replicate a painting that I'd seen in a photograph. So I looked for a Sunday magazine, and there was a picture of Sandra Rhodes with a, a painting of Dougie's in the background. Do you remember what that painting would have been? It was a small, it was a small, maybe a sort of 
you know, she Something has huge. several, so I'm not sure which one you saw first. Um, she has a big landscape. She has a one that's a portrait of her and my friend Chavita. And she has a couple of other canvases too. One that was Marilyn Monroe. Um, one that's sort of vaguely like a ballet dancer. And it was it was quite amazing how that envelope got to you in the first place. Because when I read the article, it just said that the artist was named Dougie Fields, and I knew no artist at the time. Um, it said the artist was Dougie Fields, and he lived in Earl's Court. And that's pretty much all that went on the envelope. It had Dougie Fields, artist, Earl's Court. And uh, I sent it off in the post, um, just asking for more information on you and your work. And lo and behold, a couple of weeks later, I get a, I get a reply out of the blue, which was the start the absolute foundation of, of becoming an artist myself. That's uh, a fabulous story. So it's... I like it's, that. It's, yeah, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. And, uh, yeah, without you, as, as I said when I met you the other week, without you replying to that letter, I don't believe my life would have changed in the way in the way that it has. I, thought, I think I still would have been um, in the same circles as I was. And, um, yeah, I know I've got a brilliant life. My, my children wouldn't be the great children that they are. They would have been um, different children because I had a different attitude, and it was it was all all down to you. Um, That's a fabulous and story, and thank you for telling me that. That's amazing to hear. And uh, so, thank you for agreeing to do this podcast. You're going to be the first one going out, which I I figured it was quite apt because it, you was the the first artist to uh, to write to me. So. I've, I've, figured in my podcast venture um, it'd only be right that, that you'd be the first as well um, so I've got seven questions here the first is how would you explain what you do or your style to someone who doesn't know your work gosh I find that a difficult question because I try and avoid explaining what I do to people who do know my work so let alone people who don't. <laughs> so I make paintings on canvas. I use acrylic paint. But I also make work on computer. I make images that stay still digital images. Um, some just live on the computer. Some get output as prints. Then I make animations with them. But it's usually a still that's animated as opposed to a pure animation because I'm learning. And I'm also doing music, and I'm learning to do the music. And the music is part film soundtrack and part standalone music. So painting has been my primary focus for many, many, many years. But I got a computer in the mid-90s thinking I was just going to archive my past and do collage. Yeah. But it, once I started using the computer, I'd learnt all sorts of you things. Found a new medium. Yeah, found a new medium. And it's the the work you produce. Um, you know, you, you're saying you, you make it on a computer. Um, it is, it is, you can see seeing the work itself that is that it, how it was made on a computer. Um, but interestingly, before I had a computer, I made studies for my paintings in a very very similar way very geometric and linear i used to use graph paper and tracing yeah. paper and um always 
When I, when I started painting years and years ago, I started straight on the canvas and I didn't know what I was doing. And I discovered that what was on the canvas inhibited me from making changes. So then I started doing studies before I started the canvas. And they evolved that uh, I used a graph paper, graph paper as basic, and then I would use tracing paper, and I would trace and retrace my drawings. And then I'd do a color study separately, but the color study would be over a grid, and then I would square up the canvas. So when I got a computer, I discovered the computer put up a grid, and it put up layers, just the same, and I learned to use the mouse as opposed to a pencil and a set square. And so the studies came on canvas, but the canvas that I do from a computer looks remarkably similar to the canvases that I used to do beforehand. Um, I still have my eye and my choice of way of working. I just have a different tool to use to get there. And that computer has a reality of its own where uh, I can... I've lived in the same space for a long time and I've filled it with stacks of paintings and suddenly the computer, I can make images that don't take any space. So the images are still the same kind of imagery. I still have the same focus and motivation, but what I produce doesn't take up so much space physically. So when, when you make your... When you now make your sort of sketch or study on the computer and then you put it onto canvas. Do you replicate what's there, or, or does it progress while, like, from the... No, from the I, I haven't changed what goes on the canvas for a long time, even before the computer. Yeah. The whole point of doing the study is to make all the changes that you can make, because the way I paint on canvas is that if I wanted to shift something, it would always show. So if I wanted to have moved a figure, say, from the position it's in to somewhere else, once it's on the canvas, it would show through the paint. Because the paint is always slightly transparent. uh, And I build layers to... So I, I, I put layers to build a depth of colour, but if I was shifting the image, that would show through. So I make all the shifts on the studies, which I did before the computer. Now it's, it's quicker to make changes in colour on the computer. It's quicker to make all sorts of changes, but then, because you can then I tend to make more than I did beforehand even. So uh, I spend an equal amount of time off the canvas making studies before I start the canvas. So once you've completed it on on the computer and you're happy with the finished product, do you find it a bit laborious having to paint it because you've already done the work? Now you're just Um, scaling... Let's say the work is hard work always. It's hard work getting happy with the idea on the computer takes me ages, I make thousands of changes, then getting it to read on the canvas because it's never exact, it's never I'm squaring up the canvas manually, 
but actually my grid on the computer I've made manually too, yeah. so it's slightly off. So, and then the line drawing on the computer is one thickness, the line drawing on the canvas is a pencil thickness, so then I come to paint it, well, no paintbrush produces an even, long, yeah. thick, straight black line, which is what I tend to want. And your colours are very dense as well, aren't they? They're, so, they're layers of paint, yeah. and each layer of paint destroys the edge, and so I have to redo the edges again, and every slight shift changes what the image looks like and then I think it's not looking right I've lost it uh, and I have to look and look and look and look and look and look I spend months on the canvas now about six months yeah um, and yes hard work but and you have got a, a lovely studio we was up there a little while ago just having a look around and um, yes yeah, a nice big studio a lot of light in there it always has artificial light and um, always need artificial light for them and I have size limitation but um, I have a Francis well, Bacon you say live um, size limitation yes, but, I, massive, the, but there's only a certain size I can get out yeah. the front door and get down the staircase <laughs> and uh, I used to think you're not putting a pulley off, off the balcony they, <laughs> they can't get out there either no, they can't. no there's uh, you know, window frame size um, the, so I, I've, I've worked out how big I can do it yeah. but, but when I think your stu- to myself your studio is limiting you then I think Francis Bacon yeah. and uh, I used to get the same photographer photographing my paintings in the 80s as he had photographing wow. his. And she would come from his studio to mine and say, God, it's so much easier to photograph here because you've got so much more space yeah. than Francis. <laughs> so whenever I think I'm trapped by my circumstances, he had much more economic freedom than me. He could have chosen to get somewhere bigger, but he was content with the space yeah. he had uh, that's my lesson to have learned to be content with the space I have You've, I've seen that in some, a couple of your paintings you've got France, images from Francis Bacon's work well I think he's been an influence on, in, uh, on many ways one of you my know. Um, also in your work you have you have Mondrian a lot Mondrian features in hell of a lot as well as uh, as well as Pollock Childhood Inspirations earliest introductions to art would be the artists of the 20th century from but tended to be abstract artists that was was my next question when was your first interest in art and who was your most influential I think Leger was one of my early ones Uh, Arp, Miro Picasso obviously Dali you can still see all them in your work yes yeah I I think uh, I'm never going to escape them. I don't particularly care either. I'm quite happy to... That, uh, <laughs> you know, that's what turned me on to loving the idea of not being an artist so much as making imagery, though. You know. How old was you when you first took an interest in it? Can you remember? I don't remember not drawing, but I remember um, more specifically early teenage years um, really starting to paint every day and uh, I had a big abstract period when I was about 13 14 when I'd seen Jackson Pollock on TV and the TV program had actually been taking the piss out of him as abstract art was considered 
um, I don't know what the word for it. You know how the media like to take the piss out of contemporary yeah, yeah. art. They still do, you know. And um, so I, we had a, a garden with a terrace, and I went out onto the terrace and I put my canvases or whatever I was working on on the ground. I didn't splash paint like he did, but I poured it and let the wind blow it. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it was very much pouring from different heights and letting the wind blow the paint onto the canvas. Where was you at this point? Was this when you was in Wiltshire? In Hampshire. Hampshire. I was in a town called Andover. Oh, and yeah. I would have been oh, a grammar school, a grammar school. And um, that was... So my earliest work were, were abstracts around that age. Uh, and it was the love of paint, which I still love painting. Yeah. You know, so as much as I try and remove the paintbrush, the evidence of the paintbrush in the work that I do, uh, I love putting on paint. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's only acrylic you use now. Yeah, I had a period of using oil, uh, and for all sorts of reasons, I couldn't live with the oil. Um, you have to be able to live with paint. It gets yeah. everywhere. It gets not just on your body, it gets on your clothes. You, you breathe the smell of it. And I wouldn't say I'm allergic to the smell of oil paint, but I'm uncomfortable with yeah. it. I'm un- Especially if you've got to live with it as well, where your studio's yeah. in your apartment. It permeates your life, that paint, and uh, I couldn't. just. Yeah. So I wouldn't say allergic, but almost. Can you remember what you f- the first piece that you've done that you sort of really carried with conviction that that you um... oh I think there are many actually um, there's one at art school though that uh, I got shouted out for which by the lecturers by, by the lecturers yeah so the head of painting got brought to see it um, at that time I was considered a colour field abstract painter I, I <laughs> I painted these. I was. I'd had a very conceptual phase when I'd um, a very constructivist phase when I had an algebraic formula that dictated where marks on the canvas went. Excellent. And I don't even remember the formula yeah. now. But it was it was complicated. But it was very abstract. And um, then I got quite minimal and I was just painting squares and triangles. And I had this big five-foot square canvas that essentially was just a few squares and a few triangles outlined, flat colour, outlined the way I still paint. And uh, I was wearing a Donald Duck pin on my tie. (laughs) And one day I just took it off and pinned it in the middle of the canvas and then painted it there. And that's what I got shouted out for, just what do you think you're doing, yeah. And that started a direction of me being much more pop and much more figurative. But I still think I'm an abstract conceptual about, artist, about just to say, the same. What, what bracket would you put yourself in if you, you know, if you was in a sort of an encyclopedia of art? What, you know, sort of what section do you I have, think you'd be in? Difficulty defining what I do because it's been through. It's a very conceptual approach to making figures. I I use. Flat colour outline. Pop, pop, uh... pop describes a period that is yeah. just a bit before my time. So, post pop, 
I gave it a label of maximalist in the 90s because my idea was that it was minimalism with a plus 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 nice. um, cause I, but I do have quite a minimal approach too so um, I don't really fit a, a, a group label yeah. as such yeah. well you're, you're a very colourful character yourself with your, your dress and your style and, and, and you, uh, fashion's a big a big thing for you um, do you think you you have influenced your work with your colour or, or vice versa I, or neither I don't separate my creativity to uh, you can only do this um, I think um, I'm creative I can't help it that's that's what I do yeah, yeah I make things you know I've all, I'm, as a child I made things too I've always made things was on the way here and we was talking about the the friends you have who are very similar in their creativity and their their sort of presence so I always wanted to affect my appearance in some way um, that started that's everything started sort of early teenage yeah. you know when I started asserting myself over making choices yes and I mean at school when I was about 11 I was wearing hand-me-down second-hand clothes that came via cousins and I hated what I was wearing and I got told off for being scruffy I've never forgotten (laughs) that and and then I started not really your choice is it not it wasn't my choice and I started wanting to make choice and I got to the point where I was still a, at school with a school uniform that I didn't want to wear. And as soon as I knew I was leaving, I lost my cap, I lost my blazer, uh, and I wore sandals to school and sunglasses. And um, sunglasses, I used to get migraine. I had a optical migraine today so the sunglasses were to avoid that but they weren't they just i just thought they were cool yeah. you know and sandals at that age was i'd heard of beatniks i'd heard of bohemians but i lived in the country they didn't exist yeah. but i didn't fit in for all sorts of reasons and started asserting my appearance um a little bit my domestic environment too when We'd moved from a small village to the to Andover, a small town. I got my own bedroom, and once I had my own bedroom, I wanted to make it look like my own bedroom too. So uh, I was allowed to choose curtains, wallpaper, bedspread, and that was my first of sort of thinking. You know, environment's important. Yeah. Um, I didn't last long. I had a, f- a few years after that where I had no choice in my environment, but I had choice in my appearance and very much exercised that. And What did your parents think of it in those younger years? Were they quite conservative? Yes. And uh, there was a big difficulty with how I wanted to look and how they would have liked me to look in particular conflict with my father over my appearance the whole time um, and uh, 
but once on that path, um, I think it all comes from, you know, we were outsiders in the little village as a family. My parents had moved down from London. And so we were different. We were, they were also different in that my parents were Jewish. After the Second World War, there was still a lot of, um, I don't hesitate to say racism, but uh, prejudice, yes. And, but I didn't have a particularly Jewish upbringing because I went to church on Sundays and I went to Christian schools. I think there was, there was actually no choice. What, what, you know, they weren't specially orthodox. They weren't specially concerned. Uh, their families were, on the other hand, yeah. so they were a degree away from their families. Um, I remember going to stay with an aunt and um, she said, we're having chops for lunch. And I said, oh, goody, lamb or pork? And she was horrified. <laughs> but I didn't know I'd said anything wrong. Yeah. So, so we were outsiders in the little village. Then I was an outsider for some visual reason in the family, too. That, uh, so if, if your father wasn't keen on the way you dressed then, mm. and presumably the way you was decorating your room... He didn't mind about the room, I think. It was more the appearance and the, that progressed as I got older. What would he say now if he was to walk into your apartment? Well, that's, that's the funny thing is there's this portrait of them in the gallery. And the portrait of them in the gallery, they're, uh, they're, originally it's in a painting. In a gallery they've been cut out and they're just the two of them removed from the context of the canvas. In the canvas, she's looking out and he's looking away, which was kind of, um, she's giving you her attention. He, if you want his attention, you've got to fight for it, which was a bit how it was. But the cutout figures in the gallery, somehow the context and the printing has changed them. The balance between the flesh colour and the two flesh colours. Well, you're talking, if you don't know your button, you're talking about the gallery, which we've been talking about just prior to, to coming here, but for people who may be listening, um, the, you, you've, your apartment, which is which is like a, a painting, isn't it? Yes, um, in many ways. All the walls are either got murals on them or huge paintings lent up against them. Um, your furniture is, was it handmade? Because it... Not handmade by me, but a lot of it designed by me, yeah. and some of it hand-painted. Physically, I got other people to put it together, and then I painted it myself. And the Glasgow International Gallery... It's called the Modern Institute. Sorry, the Modern Institute. And it was part of the Glasgow International Festival, which is now finished, but the exhibition still is continuing on until the so 9th of June. So they recreated it, and um, they it's recreated... Massive, isn't it? Is it Probably bigger than your apartment as well, isn't it? Well, it's higher ceiling and it's got uh, glass skylights. But um, yes, I think it. I don't know actually. It's a little bigger than my apartment, perhaps, but it's, not that so, much bigger. Yeah, it's a large apartment. Yeah. You've got, but yeah, sorry. Um, yeah. But going back to the portrait of my parents, so they've been cut out and they look happier. They've never looked so happy. It's so <laughs> bizarre. When I when I spotted it, I didn't know why. Now I've figured out it's because yeah. the printing has changed the colour. But 
My mother looks radiant with happiness, and my father is still looking away, but he's not. He's actually looking at a cutout of me, and he's beaming too. Yeah. It's it's very strange. So you, they would have been very happy. The yes. curators in the gallery set it, or, or do you reckon it was just by chance? I think it have... was just by chance yeah. and by uh, you know the printing process is one thing, and um, then the light in the gallery is another, and. Uh, I didn't spot it at first. Someone else said, your father's looking at you. Yeah. I said, no, he said, look, he's looking at you. But they actually do look so happy in there. So have I think they would have been thrilled. Have that show, uh, like, of actual artworks? Do you know, I haven't counted because... There's small uh, ones as well, There's small there? ones, yes. If it, by the looks of what I saw, and I only saw it on the, on the view you give me on your computer, maybe 40... 30 to 40? I'd say more like 30, but then there's works that are reproduced. They're two-dimensional. There are walls that are just two-dimensional, photographs of my home. Then there's paintings there's on top of paintings. There is there in that gallery. Well, there's the odd white wall, but... There, is, there are some white walls there, yes. from your white walls. Yes. It's not the gallery. There's no gallery walls on No, the, gal- the gallery is completely built the set within yeah. the gallery that's right yeah because when I when I, I met you the other, uh, the other month you had a, a small maquette yes. of, of, yeah. the, of what the show was going to look like a bit, uh, bit ironic having a maquette of your front room in, or of your home in your home but it's, it was weird walking into the exhibition for the first time and uh, because it was just like oh gosh you know this is so like my home but it's not and it's so interesting they've been so clever with the way they've the way some bits are two-dimensional some bits are three-dimensional they've squashed some elements and yeah. stretched other yeah. elements and then layered it in a way that I keep on thinking I haven't seen that before so it's, in, <laughs> it's interesting you know and I actually had someone come to me last week um, who'd seen the gallery in Scotland but never visited my home. What, and friend or...? No, it was actually the BBC, the Radio 4 programme. Yeah. She recorded me in the gallery in Scotland, so she spent quite a long time in the exhibition, and then came to me in London to get something written, and walked into the flat, and she went, oh, this is weird. <laughs> and then she said... So she's seen it with the eyes... Yes. The eyes to what you... See, and then she said, this is beautiful, though. Your flat is beautiful. Uh... So it was interesting, her reaction, because it was... I've seen it the other way round, of course, yeah. yeah. She was the first person who has seen the exhibition and then come to the real place. And what did you... The, the friends that, that you took up there with you... Oh, well, the, the, the most amazing there. was my brother and his wife. And they arrived there before I... I wasn't there when they arrived. They, they got there first, and I came along. My brother's wife was just standing there with... Just mouth open. Just a gog. Just absolutely a gog. Speechless. <laughs> it's sort of in shock. Yeah. And, it's as uh, if they've uh, been teleported. I don't know. Yes. Just. Uh, I mean, you had, you had um, as you say, about thirty works there. Um, one of the questions I've got is: what, what piece that you've created do you hold most dear? And, and, oh gosh. And uh, I've had favourites and. Uh, my all-time favourite is I sold, and uh, and on top of having sold it, I didn't get fully paid for it, hmm. and it's still. So I don't really want to talk about that too much. That's a little painful because it was one of those circumstances where I couldn't refuse to say no. Yeah. 
because yeah. I did get some of the money for it, uh, but never got fully. And uh, I don't know what what's going to happen with that. But it was um, a painting done in the mid '70s. But what's interesting about having the exhibition right now is I didn't select the work for the show. Uh, I let um, Toby, whose gallery it is, I let him curate the show. I, I stood back and I kept, I did say, I wouldn't choose that, I wouldn't choose that. Mm. And he made a very good selection, I think. Um, and um, it was interesting how it isn't the selection I would have made, it isn't the show I would have made, and I think it's great. I yeah. wouldn't change any of it. That's yeah. that's the irony, I think. It's, so Sometimes it does need to be through someone else's eyes, doesn't it? Yes. And there were pictures I haven't looked at for years that I'm looking at and thinking, well, that's I have to love a painting to finish it. Yeah. So every painting I've done I've loved, but at some point I'm then disappointed. And... Uh, there's always that. Oh, okay. You know. Otherwise, if you're not disappointed, you're not going to go and do anything else. It's because it's always you're trying to be better. Um, so, how do you title your work? That's a, that's a problem. Sometimes I have titles. Sometimes I don't. Yeah. Sometimes it's purely you need something to refer to them by. But I don't, the words and the image don't necessarily belong together. Other times, words and images come together. Mm. Um, can you see us changing your style from well, like the eighties, nineties? Yes and no. Today? Yes and no. That I see. I think I have a spiral around myself, yeah. so that uh, there are things that I've done, that I've redone, and I've redone, and I've redone, but they're not the same. Yeah. I, even if I paint the same image again, which I have done, it's not the same. It doesn't look the same. And it does look the same, but it doesn't. And my stimulus is different. It's like I've remade a lot of my old images digitally. Mm. And um, it's kind of like I treat them like they're found objects or they're, it's a new source, but I've still got the same method of working. And I don't understand what made me passionate about the image in the first place, but I'm passionate about doing them again for a different reason. Yeah. There's, this is like I'm wearing this badge, the Clockwork Orange. I did this originally as a portrait for Stanley Kubrick for the film. the film. And I never had a proper photograph of it. When I got digital, I remade, I redrew the image based on a distorted reproduction he'd had made from my original. What happened to the original? Any idea? No, because it's... It, it's got lost within the... I think it's got lost within his collection yeah. because I did meet someone who was in charge of the collection who didn't know about it, so oh, wow. lost on the way. But I've had a, quite a few paintings lost on the way, you know. Uh, yeah, so I saw there was a, a cut-out of that. What's his name? Well... Any idea? Malcolm McDowell is the actor, yeah. and the, 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 the character, character is... Is he the iconic one with a bowler hat and the, yes. the black star around his, his eye? I saw you had a cutout in your studio. Just yes. Like, yeah, that, that's, that's pretty and cool, isn't it? I, th I think there's a, a clock in the gallery in Scotland. 
actually. Oh, based on that? Yes. Clockwork Clock. And what was... What, what did he have, Stanley Kubrick? What did he... He had a canvas. He wanted me to do the film poster. And uh, at the time, I wasn't capable of doing the graphics. And I, I, I'm not a graphic designer, you know. And I also made the mistake of seeing that I read the book when it was new. When he approached me to do the poster, I read the book a second time, just before I saw the film. And I had loved the book the first time around. I liked Anthony Burgess, who wrote it. And so reading the book for a second time, I, I imagined it. And then I saw the film, and it wasn't how I imagined it. And it's not a really likeable film, either. It's powerful, but it's not likeable. Years ago, I've never read the book. Well, look... Any case, so I didn't really, I didn't do what he wanted. He he knew exactly what he wanted for the poster, and he got somebody else to do it. I did a, a canvas which had this head sort of floating in a abstract world, which was just the kind of world I was painting at the time. I couldn't compromise in the way that he wanted. Nowadays, I would find it much easier to expand what I do then I was still all about self-definition and he loved it, paid me asked me to do something else, offered me more money than I'd ever earned before and I said no I I tried but I just thought I'm not into this, I'm just not into it yeah Yeah. And uh, was it thinking that it may not be as um, it may not be what you expected because of the, the, the lack of knowledge of graphic design or that wasn't the issue so much as I really hadn't enjoyed the film and uh, I thought the imagery in the film wasn't really doing it for me in terms of inspiring me to do something from it that related to it so it was no I can't sorry I tried. I did try. I, One of the artworks I saw in the studio, which I which I hadn't seen, um, seen before, was the um, the Earl's Court one, and uh, it's a massive. Um, what, what is that? Maybe six by nine feet. Uh, maybe seven. What six by seven? Well, maybe, seven by nine. Yeah, something like that. Of Earl's Court. Um, now demolished. Now demolished. Yes. So I was memorialising it. I knew it was up for definite for de- demolition. I was opposing it for demolition. I You've st- been very vocal in that from the start, haven't you? Yes, and uh, I thought it was a disaster for the neighbourhood. And I went to so many events there and so many exhibitions all my life, and it drew hundreds of thousands of people to Earl's Court. It put Earl's Court on the world map, yeah. and we've just dumped it for a master plan that's disintegrating already and we're damaging London so much at the moment I really, I was down the King's Road yesterday, I was so shocked by the last two cinemas on the King's Road having gone Hi Dougie, Hi. I just thought I'd I saw you you? walking by and I thought I'd say hi we're just doing an interview it looked like you were busy so uh, but how are you? I'm I'm good well here we are, halfway through We've just had a little interruption by by this guy here, one of uh, Dougie's fans. 
I mean, how was he to know that we were recording? We was only sat on a bench in a cemetery, me with headphones and microphone. But he came over for a chat anyway. And then just as he goes, we get another little interruption. Let's get back to it. See you in a little while. Good to see you. Have fun. See you later. Sorry, I went blank on his name. That's going on. Being, yeah, being, we're saying being vocal about Earl's Court, and we're in this an absolutely stunning um, Brompton Cemetery today. Well, it's, it's a wild cemetery as well. And Sorry, I've got to just take this. You want to pause this for a minute? I'll, I'll let it go, and then I'll just. Uh, we are disturbed by that which surrounds. Oh, I missed it. I'm trying to get my earpiece, so I'm just going to quickly call them back. Sorry. It's all right, Dougie. You've got fibre coming out your pocket. I've got left, your left pocket, trouser pocket. That's the new, these new notes are very tricky. Very slippery. Very slippery. I've, I've actually had them pop out completely. So, where were we? Um, it was cold. Being vocal about about it being demolished and we sat in this beautiful graveyard today cemetery wild cemetery we've got a, a family of pigeons sat opposite us several squirrels jumping about and the unsightly view of three or four cranes the noise that is going to go on for what did you say 20 20 years estimate? The estimate was 10 to 20 years when they started, but now with all the hiccups on the way, I'm saying that'll be 20 to 30 years. If, because who knows what's going to happen now. There was a master plan, but politics have shifted so that um, Hammersmith and Fulham have gone from Conservative to Labour and they want to pull out of the deal. Uh, the developers are telling them they can't, and they're saying they're going to. The mayor has stepped in and bought back this building called the Empress State Building, which was supposed to be part of the development. And even Kensington and Chelsea, although they're still conservative, has said the master plan can't happen. So... Who knows what's going to happen? Recently in the paper it had how the company, the owning company, were demerging. They own Covent Garden as well, and they were demerging the two schemes. That was supposed to be good for their investment, and their shares fell even more than they'd been falling. So um, it seems that the Earl's Court project would be up for sale, but whether anyone will buy it or not remains to be seen they, they're still insisting it's going to go ahead they're, impli- they're applying to build more housing uh, but who knows what will happen with planning on that one and that, the, the painting of the Elms Colt that looks it's obviously, obviously your hand and there's your figures in there maybe it's because it's such a monumental building which takes up probably 90% of the canvas. Yes. Um, it, 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 it looks like a new type of work. It, it doesn't look like your old work. Ah, I haven't done 
Is, mean, it, is it not complete yet? No, it's complete. But there are paintings that I did in the past of buildings that have a similar feel. Yeah, they've got, yeah it's, it's, not, uh, it's no different. It's just very... It's, it's a lot lighter. It's not as... Maybe because there's, there's a lot of a lot of white in it. But um, normally you have a, a horizon line, don't you, in a... Um, I frequently and a, and have a, a horizon. And a gradient yes. blue sky, which there yes. isn't. No. Uh, each painting is different. You know, they relate to each other and then they react against each other. So um, I have done some more digital versions of the exhibition centre. I've done one of it, it being demolished, yeah. uh, which is just a digital image, but I've used it quite a bit for the campaign because the the campaign to save the exhibition centre has now shifted to being a, a campaign to rebuild an mm. exhibition centre, to re, to pull life back into the neighbourhood because it's just dying. But then, as I said, I was on the King's Road yesterday and I'm shocked at how empty the King's Road is of people and how glossy all these empty shops look. They've all been done up but, yeah. and they look glossy but there's no people so whether anyone's ever going to rent, rent them again like a lot of the people around there lights on but no one's at home yeah no lights on actually no one at home there's more more what's happening around here and and yet we have this great housing shortage in london yeah. and uh, we're building we're allowing these structures to be built that will remain occupied or will be for immigrants, rich immigrants because we're only allowing in rich immigrants, not even then Yeah Now I was saying that, that, that the Elves Court looks like a, a new piece of work you've, you've gone in a I know you've been working with music and sound over the last how many years? I don't know when I started But it seems um, to be not coming together, that's, that's not quite right but it seems to have got to a different place now, hasn't it? Yeah, the music. You, you was playing me some music. Yes, um, I, I would say the music has got to a place where the music stands alone. It does definitely. Um, when I did um, this, my London program that just went out, I had to choose six pieces of music. Yeah. And I included one of my tracks, and my track was the very end of the program, and. I have to say, even listening to it, it didn't sound like a drop in musical quality. Yeah, you know, yeah. it, it's it stood its ground. And it's, the music in audio form is very much like your work in visual form compared to like to, talking of digital. Yes. So it does replicate um, your work very much in an audio form. I have an interesting way of working too that. Um, I let a lot of random elements affect what I do visually as well as what I do musically. Visually, I often just scrawl something that becomes something in a canvas. Because you you, you talk about yourself, talk, so you have no boundaries. I have no boundaries, and I I use random samples without listening to them. And, of course, Marianne Faithful was, was featured, wasn't she? I've got one track that this year she put her voice, sent me her voice to add to it. But uh, that was amazing because I always admired her voice and never expected that we would have a vocal together. 
We sound pretty good together, I think. That was, that was played on... Oh, oh. No, it hasn't ever played yet. No, that was... Um, I'm, I'm sorry, I meant your music was played on Gary Crowley's... Um, he, he played my So Cool track. Yeah. And uh, it sounded so cool. It sounded... It worked, you know. <laughs> and you also featured on... But I did play one of Marianne Faithful's track on that program. I played her Broken English, which I think is a fabulous yeah. track. And you, you've been featured again on, we were talking about this earlier, on Radio 4. What was the, the program? Only Artists. Only Artists. It actually went out yesterday in the morning and in the evening, but yesterday it's now on iPlayer, Wednesday the 31st. Because this won't go out until the, the start of July, this, this one, so would it be? The iPlayer will have finished by then. They're on for three weeks or 30 days or something, aren't they? 30 days, yeah. And what what was that show about? Was it about your show in Scotland or was it about Dougie Fields? No, it was was a conversation between two artists, essentially. But the other artist is a writer as opposed to me being essentially a painter. You and him Uh had a conversation? Uh Uh And she was from Glasgow. So they recorded us in Glasgow so that we could... We started off in my exhibition and then she took me to somewhere which had been somewhere that she used to work. And so we had a history of each other and we'd never met before, so it was a conversation about creativity and about our lives too. And what, was you given a format to talk about or...? Not really, no. We were just, uh, I knew that she would take me somewhere in Glasgow and uh, I knew that she was coming to my exhibition. Um, I also started the writer. The writer. The Radio 4 stood back and let us talk. Um, But I actually started reading one of her books, which I've now finished, and I'm reading a second novel of hers and enjoying them. Louise Welsh. Louise Welsh. I had a similar thing a little while ago. Um, it's called Charlotte's Compass. Um, there's a, an actress who was putting out a. Um, it was being done on, on video and audio, and she would just come to my home. Um, the, while the film crew set up, um, she sat in another room. So I didn't. She didn't know of me. Right. Until she walked into my kitchen and, went, and I was sitting there at the kitchen table, and I introduced myself and said that I'm an artist and been to prison, and that's my you know my story is that I went to prison, become an artist, and that's what we spoke about there right. and then. And um, yeah, it's, it's it's quite funny how a conversation with a stranger yes can go. It's it's quite different when you when you sort of know the person or or it's it's not a person. Um, you know, if you sit on the on the bus, it'd, it'd be a different conversation. But yeah, it, it can be surprising in where it goes. Then it was edited by the Radio Four, so it was broadcast as half an hour, whereas we talked for a lot longer. And I don't remember what we talked about that didn't get broadcast. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, one of the last questions here is. Um, I mean, you've already spoke about um, a, f- a few of your favourite artists, but if, if you was in a show with five artists, you could pick the five artists to be in a show with, or you and five others, who would that be, do you think? 
I don't know. I'm in a show at the moment with more than five others. <laughs> and um, one who's a friend, Andrew Logan, who's a great friend, and Excellent. I admire his work. Then there's two other artists in the show who I've never met but I think are amazing. Uh, Nikki de Saint-Fal and uh, Hunter Twasser. Oh, wow. And uh, I am a big fan of Hunter Twasser as an architect and as an artist. It's very interesting. We could do some more buildings that look like his, and those are so boring. If they were Hunter Twasser, they would look fascinating. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so that was a great combination to be in a show with. Um, I don't have a dream group who I'd like to be in a show with. It's really what is your favourite painting by another art? Not painting, but famous artwork by another artist. I don't have one. I admire thousands. Yeah. You know, so to pick one it's is like it's random. It's and favorite it's song, favourite film, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. very difficult. Um, who is my all-time favourite artist? I don't know. If I'm having a top ten, I've mentioned a few already. Um, we'd have to have Francis Bacon in there, but who else? I don't know. I don't know. It's too. It's too. It eliminates too many people. I don't. You know. I. I love looking at paintings of all sorts. Uh, there was a program on TV the other day, Hieronymus Bosch, and I thought. I haven't looked at Bosch paintings for years. Yeah. Fascinating. And you get lost in time. Yes. Uh, there are too many artists to, to pick. But if you wasn't an artist, what would you be? Or what would you like to be if you wasn't an artist? Or what do you think you would have been if you didn't become one? I really don't know, because the only job I did was... Um, my parents have a shop... I was brought up over the shop. I helped in the shop. Um, when I was at school, I got a job in a record shop in the holidays. All the way through art school and, and architecture school, I worked in a record shop. So I think being a shop assistant isn't inspiring. Having a shop um, is a different matter, but um, I'm not really into business. But I think... Um, that would be in the blood. That rounds up all of our questions. Where can, where can anyone see your work on social media, website? Instagram and Facebook. I have a website, but it doesn't get updated. It's, it's a bit static. I haven't done anything to it for quite a while. That's exactly the same. Yeah. So I, I post things on Instagram more regularly and on Facebook. On Instagram, you're just as... Dougie Fields. Dougie Fields. And on Facebook, Dougie Fields. And I put things on Twitter as well. And you, you, a lot of stuff you're doing on Twitter at the moment. Twitter tends a, to be political for me. Yeah, yeah. A, that seems to be like a new little genre for yourself. You're, uh, you're, you're quite prolific in, in what you put up and, and how it's put up. And it's amazing that you can find it, pull out the, extract the interest out of a mundane, what would be a mundane... Um, I think there's a point of photography. Yeah, it's either it's beautiful or there's something funny or something ironic or just something really. This shouldn't be happening. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I have a, quite a few photographs of things. You think it's just shouldn't. It's just a shame. Just a shame. I, I put a whole series up on Facebook yesterday. The shaming of the, of the King's Road. Yeah. Just. Uh, London seems to be going as it's changing before our eyes. It's not evolving, it's changing. It used to evolve. 
cities, towns and landscapes used to evolve, but now they just seem to change. Now it's sort of a development rampant with councils. Do you think councils having um, outsourced responsibility? Oh, definitely. Not caring about the environment that exists, not caring about communities. It's just ticking boxes. All about income. Income, income, regardless of actually future cost. Yeah, what is it they say? The the price of everything, but the worth of value of nothing. Well, Dougie, that's all my questions done. Thank you very much for everything. Yeah, right. How about that, Mr. Dougie Fields? That weren't bad for a first episode, was it? As I say, without him replying to that very first letter I sent, I very probably wouldn't be sitting here today. Well, at least not the man I am, that's for sure. I'd still be back in my old life, wandering about in them same old circles. So yeah, I owe Dougie quite a lot. Dougie's on social media quite a lot, mainly on uh, Instagram and Twitter. So if you would, go over to social media, find him, like him, follow him. Even send him a message with a little bit of love saying that you heard him on the Mizog Art podcast. He's got some great stuff going on over there. As Dougie mentioned earlier, he's been making music for a few years. I asked him to send one over that I could put on at the end of this podcast. He sent over the title track from his album. It's called So Cool. And it really is an audio representation of his artwork. So that's about it from me. Don't forget, give Dougie Fields a little hello on social media. Tell him you've listened to him on the podcast. If there's anything you want to ask me, drop us a line at mizogart.com or on social media at mizogart, M-I-Z-O-G-A-R-T. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week. Here's Dougie Fields' So Cool. Ta-da.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.